You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Good morning and welcome to all our listeners. Peace and blessings to you all. This is the Voice of Islam. Sunday the 20th of November 2022. The time now is coming up to 10 or 4. Welcome to the Weekend World Show with Asan Ahmadi. You're listening to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile and online, 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from the Bethel Fatu Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show, a current phaser show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and enlightenment, a message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Co-hosting with me as usual is Waleed Ahmed, Chief Librarian at the Bethel Fatou Mosque here in Morden, UK's largest mosque. Assalamu alaikum Waleed, how are you? Well, uh, well as can be, thank you. Yes, with mm-hmm. the... With the well into November, and the weather is very mild, apart from being wet, but the weather is mild, not very cold, and uh, mm-hmm. with the rising cost of energies, uh, it's good for the house not to be heated mm. up all day long, otherwise you would have had a heating mm. on full blast. No, that's one way of looking at it. It is. Very good, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Very yeah. positive. Uh, I don't like the rain, though. <laughs> no, uh, mm-hmm. but it's needed. Uh, the winter of rain, course, yeah. this, they say the winter rain mm. is a very important uh, need because uh, the water levels in the water table rises. In the summer, when there's heavy rain, that water does not go into the water level oh. because the 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 greenery, the trees, the shrubs, they absorb all that water immediately, mm. so it doesn't go into the water table. Yeah, I'm all so, for it so long as it's not on me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get you a better <laughs> umbrella for next time. Mm. Anyway, we'll leave. Mm. Bodily exercise, when compulsory, does not make does not harm the body. But knowledge, which is acquired under compulsion, obtains no hold on the mind. So mm. said Plato, the famous Greek philosopher, basically saying that you can't compel people into into believing, into thinking, and into doing things. Mm. That has to come from within one's knowledge. Mm. Not very true. I mean, it ties in very nicely with the. Uh, that phrase in the Holy Quran, which says, like Afidin, there's no uh, compulsions in matter of belief. Indeed. There can't be any compulsion in matter of belief. That's what basically what it said. Yeah. Because if you force a particular view on people, mm. then they will not hold it sincerely, and it will soon um, loose or loosen hold Indeed. on people. Indeed. And uh, it is unfortunate that much of the 20th century, in fact, 19th century, was uh, spent by... Um, enemies of Islam mm. in uh, in promoting the uh, misconception that Islam has been promo- has been spread by the sword so this uh, Plato's uh, statement uh, very much runs against that you cannot force you cannot compel, cool. yeah. and, and for Islam to have spread the way it did and and remained mm. in that sort of means that this was not through compulsion no, no. so that is a false narrative that has been given oh, yes. by Orientalists, I would mm, say, or mm. Western thinking, or the or, or those who are not mm. 
uh, following the Islamic uh, culture. Uh, yeah. So it's their agenda yeah. Uh, yeah. that has uh, crept into mm. in mm. making believe, people believe that. Mm. Indeed. Uh, right. Thank you for those initial thoughts. Uh, what have we got in store for our show for our listeners this morning? Well, we'll be joined live by uh, Dr. Iqbal from Bradford to discuss the news stories of the week and see if there are any solutions to the rising economic crisis we are facing. With more, uh, I'm sure that's going to be. Uh, Mm. Uh, added. Yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be other news items as well. Mm. Twitter is having a bit of a tantrum, I think. Mm. Uh, uh, Trump might be coming back on Twitter. Or mm. he's been in, he's been I think he's back. back. Yeah, he's back. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we'll be looking at other financial issues which mm. are going on around the world as well. Um, what about the faith in focus? Uh, that yes. uh, you'll be doing that. So it'll be yes. It's going to be the last basically episode relating to the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and relates to the events uh, that uh, led to his uh, passing away. Mm. It was it was planned to be a six week or mm. a eight week type of uh, series, but we've gone on to it for a year and a half, mm. at least that, Yes. Uh, just on, on the life of the Holy Prophet. Mm. And, and in fact, I feel as if we're rushing into the end mm. of it. <laughs> you know, there's so much more to, to absolutely. cover. Absolutely, yes. Uh, his life has been mm. absolutely incredible. Absolutely. As Letimer, yes. I think, once said, that he uh, was one of the greatest um, philosophers, wartime leader, mm. peacemaker, uh, you know, all yes. the adjectives you can think of, yeah. you know, he put into one. Yeah. That's a paragraph, just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, th that's coming to an end, and we'll see what else we got uh, in the future next time. Uh, what about after the 11 o'clock news? Well, there's been a rise of various issues around safety and rights of women, with an increase, uh, a rise in crime on women here in Britain, mm. uh, as well as uh, issues around women's rights and choices with large-scale protests in Iran. So uh, we'll be joined by Melissa Hamdi from Manchester, a young lady convert to Islam, who will spell... Uh, who will spell out her story and about uh, wearing the hijab out of uh, out of choice? Yeah, and we'll have a look mm. at uh, ask her about the Islamic perspective mm. compared to what she was before and now uh, about uh, the women's rights. What mm. uh, what are women's rights, and uh, have the West really got those rights or not? Mm. Uh, so it'll be something that we'll be interested to listen to, young Melissa. Uh, and sports uh, with the start of the most prestigious prestigious. Yeah. Event starting today. It's a major event. Yes, indeed. And uh, Shazil Loan will be joining uh, Shahid to discuss the football mm. and the politics of the World Cup starting today. And the FIFA president, uh, Gianni Infantino, accused the West of hypocrisy and is uh, fully supporting the Qatar uh, or Qatar World Cup. A uh, question we will be asking is should politics and sports be intertwined as well as uh, who to watch out uh, for this uh, World Cup? Yes, uh, and we'll uh, have a little discussion on the T20 World Cup, which was very mm. successful and uh, yeah. a lot of interest. And yeah. England reached the final, as did Pakistan. Uh, mm. They played mm. the final, and we'll discuss that as well very briefly, hopefully. Right, that's great. Uh, inshallah, an interesting show in store for our listeners. Anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning 0286877878. And uh, they can listen to us on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live the weekend world show with us and Amzi. the views on the weekend world show are those of the individuals and guests right we're going to start with our first segment of the show and i believe we'll have uh, dr iqbal with us shortly um so the first segment as always is our uh, 
news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, Willie. Um, could Twitter collapse or go bankrupt? Uh, Elon Musk reacts on Friday to the latest wave of chaos to hit Twitter as as uh, was to tweet a picture of the company's logo simply posed on a gravestone. <laughs> Rest in peace. I think mm-hmm. he was trying to send a message. Or is he? Former Twitter staff are wondering if problems at the company are are indeed existential. Yes, since, yes, the Telsa chief executive took over last month, the company has been hit by swinging job cuts and advertised a boycott, warnings of bankruptcy, and now a mass resignation among its remaining staff. Musk uh, fired approximately 7,500 strong workforce in the first week of November within days of taking over. This left about 3,500 workers uh, uh, working for Twitter now. Overnight, an unspecified number of those employees left after Musk set them a 5 p.m. ET deadline on Thursday to accept long hours at high intensity and being extremely hardcore or else leave with three months severance pay. According to one report, 75% chose severance, which would leave less than 1,000 employees at Twitter. Maybe you ought to get Mick Lynch dealing with this <laughs> situation. <laughs> yes, he'd sort it out, wouldn't he? He'd sort it out, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, especially with this uh, uh, long hours and high intensity work, mm. it's not something he's very fond of. Uh, joining us this morning is uh, Dr. Iqbal, the farmer healthcare professional and an active Twitter user, if, mm. if, if you know what I mean. Uh, good morning. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Iqbal. Wa alaikum salam, and Thank you for having me. No, no, it's a pleasure having you uh, with us as always, with your frank views as always. Um, uh, I, I know you're a good, uh, you're quite active on on your Twitter account. What do you make of this news of what's happening, and uh, also about uh, Donald Trump coming back online? Yes, really intrigued. Um, I have to say. Um, so I don't know if. Elon Musk has got himself into deeper waters than he realizes, but uh, uh, I think things are really up in the air at the moment. Um, firstly, I, I, I think buying Twitter at that price does seem to be very expensive given the collapse of all the tech uh, sector. So there's some difficulties, but then with the numbers of people who are leaving Twitter as well, it's uh, it's quite amazing. and I. As you said, I'm, I'm a regular Twitter user. I have quite uh, strong social and political views that I like to express mm. and uh, sometimes annoy people as well, which is the good thing about uh, Twitter. But, um, you know, the strange thing is, despite... there, are, I was listening to a program yesterday, and they were saying only three major developers are left with Twitter and hundreds and hundreds of the major developers, and yet... Twitter is still up in the air. It's not. It's functioning. So that's really quite surprising. Uh, um, so, but uh, in relation to Trump, my personal view is that he shouldn't have been banned in the first place. Um, I think it's hypocritical uh, banning only certain people from certain sectors of the political uh, sort of uh, uh, ideologies and viewpoints, etc. I know a lot of people don't like it. That's fine. But there's a lot of obnoxious people who are really, you know, uh, quite nasty on the left side as well. 
So his view that he might lean side, I think he's put out uh, a vote to uh, ask people whether, and from what I could see, most people I think were angling that he should be admitted back again. And um, my view is why not uh, let him express his views and let people make their mind up. Uh, yeah. in the free world. That's how it should work. Yeah, I think the, there was around about a 60-odd percent vote for him to come back from the Twitter. It was marginal, uses. from what I remember. Sorry? It was marginal in favour of him coming back. So the latest I heard was around 60 percent. Oh, might okay. have dropped slightly, but right. uh, marginal or not, the question is this, that if you don't have the social media, Dr. Iqbal, um, where the general public gives their views and, and narrate their stories, you are going to rely on the established media to give you the news. And we already know that the new, the, the, the conventional media will be biased sometimes and, and ca- carry certain agendas. Uh, I was looking at a clip uh, recently about uh, the shortages of eggs, where it was being put out that it was the Aryan, Aryan flu that was causing it or this and the other, but the farmers are up in arms. That uh, That is not the reason of it. It's the, it's, the, it's the supermarkets that are causing the rise. I think it's quite disgraceful, Hassan. You're absolutely right. And also, if you follow the coverage of what's happening in Ukraine, or the coverage of... I know you're going to do the FIFA Football Club as well. It's absolutely disgraceful, the, the, the way they're doing. A, a lot of it started off during the Trump era, um, where, you know, the media was split between the sort of right-wing Fox media and mm. CNN and CNBC and all those. Um, and so that you'd expect because, you know, people do align themselves to either left or right. But the bias was there. But sadly, I think since the Trump era, the social media also have picked sides. And uh, I find it really alarming uh, at their ability to, um, you know, um, develop opinions in people by just voicing a certain viewpoint and ideology and banning others. Um, uh, Twitter politically was probably the most uh, active and uh, most influential uh, social network. And I think that's why Elon stepped in, to be honest, because I think he, as I say, he's paid over the top. But I think there was a a principle involved and he had plenty of money, I suppose. So I'm sure even if he loses it and uh, Twitter closes down, uh, he'll he'll survive. But uh, I, I think that was his viewpoint that, look, this is hypocritical. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's got money to burn, so he's not too worried about losing that money. But but I think the principle was important that uh, people have uh, the openness, which what social media is all about. I think will lead us mm. to come uh, into uh, this. Dr. Bal, do you think that uh, um, there are some users that should be banned? And uh, on what basis and who bans them? Mm. I think, look, there, there has to be a degree of regulation. And so absolutely blatant sort of hatred and uh, you know telling people to become violent etc or childhood pornography or all these things you know so there has to be limits and you have to ban those but expressing a political view whether it's left or right that shouldn't be banned because that's the way human beings are and you have to allow that and you have to allow people to make their minds up freely uh, but just simply, you know, banning it because you disagree. Where, where do you stop then? You know, do you stop uh, religious discussion on something because you're, you know, harming somebody's feelings? It's like the places like in Pakistan. You know, you can't have an open discussion about uh, certain uh, religious viewpoints or philosophy, etc. 
So if the West is going to go down that, and, and it seems they are going down that route, I think it's quite disgraceful. And I, I, I followed, as you know, very closely, particularly the Ukraine war and this battle between China and Russia on the one hand and the Western world. And it's quite alarming, uh, the, 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 the dividing lines now that are being created. Uh, and even, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, thing about eggs, absolutely right. I saw that video as well, and it's disgraceful that poor farmers are not being given any coverage and all these multinationals and massive companies and the government uh, have got their story you know, being portrayed by social media and the general media. Indeed. Um, and, and talking about, I mean, Waleed's question was a good one, uh, you know, about what should be banned. What about fake news? This is what Trump was all about. Uh, although he accused people of fake news, he himself was promoting fake news, especially what happened uh, on the 9th of January, um, when there was an attack on the White House. Um, there was a lot of fake news going on about what he was saying in, in those, and, and really basically inciting um, what you could call a revolution in America. But, but fake news, Essen, can come from both sides as well, and it's up to us as you know, reasonable, sensible people as well to be able to judge between fake news and on balance. Look, you, you point out Trump. What about Justin Trudeau? Right? For tweeting out 15,000 protesters have been killed by the Iranian authorities. It's a total fake news. For a head of a major nation, major government, and there were other prominent people, right, putting all that out. Now I call that fake news as well. How about banning uh, Trudeau and uh, other uh, right-wing media people? We don't do that, do we? No, you're absolutely right. The hypocrisy goes on. And talking of hypocrisy, um, uh, Qatar has uh, announced that they are banning alcohol from the 2022 FIFA World Cup in stadiums. Uh, Al Jazeera reports, I believe. What else do they say? Um, yes, so they said that uh, um, um, there are rules. No, they're, they're saying that uh, on Saturday, well, it was on Saturday, FIFA announced alcohol will no longer be available at stadiums hosting uh, the uh, Qatar World Cup. Uh, it will still be available in Qatar during the tournament, but not uh, to be as omnipresent as at previous tournaments. No, but where are the roots of this nexus? How did the world support start to revolve around alcohol? It's all going back at least as far as the Romans, says Professor Stephen Jackson of Otago University in New Zealand. In more recent times, uh, United States advertisers soon realized the power of identifying their product with the sports team in the early days of a popular radio in uh, the hope of uh, building crossover loyalties where fans' loyalties and behavior would become associated with loyalty to the local beer that brought you the game. Mm. Sports, beer and masculinity form a systematic neutralized holy trinity, says Jackson, as, the, as they interact with the marketplace and broader drawing of gender in contemporary culture. Basically saying there's the marketing boards that are pushing all this agenda mm. and uh, and they want to sell their beer and that's what makes money. That's a very quick uh, clip of what uh, Gianni Interfania, uh, Infantino on, said on this alcohol ban. It's discussed, debated and taken jointly. There will be, I don't know how many fan zones, eight, ten big fan zones, over 200 places where you can buy alcohol in Qatar anyway. Uh, over ten fan zones where over 100,000 people can simultaneously drink alcohol. 
100,000 people at any particular moment. I think personally, if for three hours a day you cannot drink a beer, you will survive, especially because actually the same rules apply in France or in Spain or in Portugal or in Scotland, where no beer is allowed in stadiums. Now here it seems to become a big thing because it's a Muslim country, or I don't know why, I don't know why. We tried, and that's why, that's the one I give you, of course, the late change of uh, policy, because we tried until the end to see whether it was possible. Mm, Western media is not going to be happy with uh, <laughs> Gianni Infantino, uh, Dr. Iqbal, because he, he, he's saying it, isn't it? He's saying, it, he's saying the oh, right thing. He did a fantastic job. <laughs> <laughs> the media don't he like it. You should have seen the commentators and you can see I watched all the news channels and their yeah. mouths dropped. <laughs> <laughs> It put them in place. And tell you the truth, if you listen to the news today, uh, yeah. there was less about all the controversies about Qatar and it was more about the football, which is the very thing hmm. uh, he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly think for one, the Qataris and probably the president did this on purpose. Look, it's been so hypocritical and unfair, honestly. They're bent over, you know, 220 billion, which they shouldn't have spent in my view, to be honest, because most nations have spent about 20 billion for any major festival, mm. football tournament, etc. But they went out of their way. And as he also said, these migrant workers, many migrant workers from my village go to the Middle East to work because can't earn a penny in Pakistan. Mm. It's just absolutely pathetic, right? Mm. And he pointed out that these migrant workers also come. Yes, of course, there's some unfair treatment, but that's been going on for 30, 40 years. Where is the Western media? But that needed to be pointed out in change. But on the other hand, they happily get, get visas for their sons and cousins and nephews, and they earn a lot of money. And you should see the development in these countries mm. like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, for based on that. And this thing that Europe has plenty to apologize is absolutely right. Mm. Athens, Rome, all these countries were built on slave labor. Absolutely. But, but, uh, but, slave labor. but this on alcohol, particularly. Uh, it's it's become so uh, in, embedded in the cultures of the Western nations that going without alcohol, as Infantino says, for three hours, can they not survive? Of course they can. You know, it's, why why is alcohol such a big thing with with these cultures now, and it's particularly in sports? I, I I think again that's a marketing ploy, and interestingly, I didn't realize actually the French and the Spanish ban uh, alcohol in the stadium. So thank you, you know. Yeah, at least this is where you need facts at your fingertips mm. to challenge the mm. media. How hypocritical! Indeed. I mean, if a Muslim country doesn't allow it, that should, that's well and good, and it should have been there from the start, uh, probably. But I think they were trying to be flexible. But when they got fed up with being hammered with all these, um, you know, things against the country and against the football tournament, they said, right, enough is enough. Yeah. Willie, your thoughts on that? No, um, do you, Dr. Iqbal, do you think that it's a case of uh, the West wanting to force its views on those nations that do not share uh, the same views? Yeah, why does Absolutely. everything have to be at the Western agenda? Why not at the other hmm. agendas? I, I, I think that is becoming very clear now. And if the West doesn't watch it, they're going to get 
so isolated already in relation to this Ukraine uh, Russia thing and then China you know you can see that a lot of the south from south america africa asian countries etc they're saying we've had enough leave us alone don't bully us if you want to fight with the or challenge the russians etc mm. you go your way and here if they keep on ramming these social agendas you know the lgbt agenda to every country fine if you want to do it in the west that's fine because yeah. you know you liberal democracies you have your own uh, ways of expressing things and doing things but don't to do it to other countries i i think it's going to backfire against the west well i think it's strong of the qataris uh, to to sustain their uh, uh, values and their lo- laws and rules and and sticking with it um what about uh, on the financial side now uh, dr Iqbal? failure of ftx crypto exchange will have huge implications says the guardian the uk parliament this week heard during testimony on the failed cryptocurrency exchange ftx the most of the money it held came from institutions yet uh, with about 8 billion still owed to depositors its collapse has still left many individuals nursing significant Losses. Well, this is to do with the FTX. Uh, uh, I'm not f- too familiar with this. Yeah, I was going to ask Dr. Iqbal yeah. if you can throw some light. Explain yeah, no, to I, us. I followed it uh, very closely because yeah. I've been doing a lot of research on, uh, you know, as you know, history of money and trade and everything. And uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the the young man, you know, uh, one of the richest billionaires, he had a personal fortune of over 16 billion. And FTX had over 36-odd million. So it was a massive, massive company, uh, really supported by the who's who of uh, the the joint ventures and, uh, you know, venture capitalists uh, Mm. uh, and people with connections to the highest, and I say I said highest level of politics, going up to the president of the United States, the Democratic Party, and uh, even the regulators with Gary Gensler at the SEC, so this is going to really come out in a bad way for uh, America in particular and generally for the financial uh, markets. FTX was the second biggest global uh, uh, exchange. Um, but, you know, you can't blame all exchanges. Uh, Binance and many of the others are uh, much better in the way they are run, etc. But this guy was, it seems quite clear, quite a crook. And he had bought the politicians. He had basically supported the democratic midterm elections in a big, big way. And it's just so strange that he collapses just the next day after the elections are over. And his parents are big supporters of the Democrats as well. So uh, there's a lot of egg on people's faces, but uh, a lot of dark stuff is going to come out of this scandal. Just for our listeners as well, and for both me and Waleed here, uh, because we're quite in the dark about this, what is cryptocurrency and how come um, this is such a, has a, such a big influence on the, on the market and what, and what causes collapse uh, to cause such an uproar? Is this on the same level as the collapses uh, that have happened recently, the subprime uh, market in America? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and, it's, it's as big as the Lehman's uh, moment in many respects in the cryptocurrency. I mean, the cryptocurrency market uh, in this last peak year was close to $3 trillion. So it's growing quite substantially from virtually nothing. And, you know, a lot of people used to take it as a joke and uh, something that uh, gangsters and uh, drug lords and that. But it's moved on from that, to be honest. Big, big institutions and banks 
and uh, you know large funds are coming into it. So it's not a joke anymore. It's a, it's a real uh, part of the economy. Um, and the, the forerunner to that was Bitcoin. So you have to separate that out because there's a lot behind it. I can't. But there are about twenty thousand cryptocurrencies, and ninety. Nine percent of those are absolute rubbish, mm. which needs to be washed out. But this is where the regulators are totally, totally failing in their jobs. Gary Gensler was a mate, <laughs> was a mate of Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, his girlfriend's father, very close friend, mm. connected, sitting together. This, this is corruption that goes to the highest level. Gary Gensler was the chairman of the SEC, appointed by the U.S. Uh, government as well. So cryptocurrency was really created after the 2008 crash uh, for investors who wanted something different rather than the no normal fiat currency and stock market, uh, etc. And Bitcoin has gone from nothing to a value of at the peak in 2021, about 70,000 nearly, and now it's about 15,000 or so, and it will continue to grow. Bitcoin will survive, but cryptocurrency is going to go through a major uh, shakeout, and that's good. That's good for investors mm -hmm. because they've been harmed, and I blame the regulators for that, not just the crookedness of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried uh, and his gang. So will this uh, collapse affect or affect the general market, the financial market, or is it just those who have invested in it and this guy personally? I think SP500 and Dow, etc. will be protected to some extent. But remember, some of the big hedge funds also put money into the crypto. So there will be a little effect, but it will be mainly... And I think a lot of the impact uh, we've already seen because it started off in May uh, 2022 with one of the crashes with uh, a cryptocurrency called Luna, then Celsius, another lender sort of thing that was fidgeting uh, from you know, their books and uh, doing dodgy things. And mm -hmm. now FTX, which is actually behind all of these scams, uh, you know, scamming things and... Um, so it will affect the cryptocurrency significantly, but it will survive. It's it's a big industry now, and uh, there's some good usage, you know, in terms of some of the software development that's going on, etc., because it will have a big impact on future developments, and you can't stop innovation. Like the dot-com bubble of 2000, it's going to burst, it will go down, but look at Amazon. You know, the, the, the technology mm. companies rule the world, and they certainly uh, rule SP500, the five, six companies that were called fan companies. The cryptocurrency in 10 years' time, uh, I'm absolutely certain it'll be a big, big player in the SP500 area. Indeed. Uh, uh, our advice to our listeners would be whenever you make any sort of investments, you should look into it and uh, remember that such investments can go down as well as go up. So it is. Uh, uh, Especially, Asan, with you know, cryptocurrency, if you don't do research, don't even touch it with a barge pole. <laughs> hmm. That's very good advice. So, our listeners, thank you very much, Dr. Iqbal, for sharing your thoughts on the these news items that we had today. Thank you and for your thank frank you. news on that. Appreciate as well, it. As always. Thank you. Okay, we'll uh, we'll move on to our next segment of the show, um, which is the Faith in Focus. In the last edition <coughs> of this program, we discussed the various indications that the Holy Prophet had given that he was going to leave the world soon, depart. He, we will now discuss the illness he suffered and the events leading up to his sad demise. So briefly, can you recap on the kind of indications 
that foretold the demise of the Holy Prophet. Mm. Well, These are blessings of Allah be upon yes. him. Uh, well, um, there, were be, there were quite a few. When you look back, uh, you notice them. But I suppose when they are taking place uh, live, then you don't perhaps notice them as much. Um, he did uh, mention uh, at the Hajj, just uh, a few, six months before, that uh, uh, that uh, he should be listened to very carefully uh, because he may not be there uh, a year later. Mm. This is something he said. He said to his uh, friend Moaz uh, bin Jabal that uh, you know that he's very dear to him, and that uh, it may be a case that uh, they would not meet. Moaz was going on uh, to take his position as governor of uh, Yemen at the time. And uh, he said to us, maybe next time you come over, uh, you will only find my mosque and my grave and not me. Mm. Um, and then he also said, this is eight days before his illness, or a week or so before his illness, to his servant, that uh, he said that he was given a choice of uh, living a longer life and then paradise or paradise immediately. And the servant urged him to choose the former, choose the life, a longer life and paradise. And the Holy Prophet said, no, he had already made his choice. So clear indications that uh, his time to, uh, to depart the world uh, were uh, uh, very close. And uh, it should also be uh, remembered that there was a, uh, the Surah Al-Nasr that was recited. And uh, when Hazrat Abu Bakr started weeping, uh, uh, profusely uh, to the dismay for the companions. Uh, the verses were uh, talking about the victory uh, of Islam and how a lot of people are going to be uh, joining the fold <coughs> of Islam. And uh, what made him weep, weep uh, particularly was when the Holy Prophet said after reciting those verses that a servant of the Lord was granted the choice to stay on a little longer upon the earth or return to him forthwith. And he preferred uh, the latter, that is to um, um, uh, go to his Lord immediately. Mm. And uh, it is this that uh, made Hazrat Abu Bakr so, uh, feel so grieved and uh, because he recognized the import of what was being said. And the Holy Prophet also recognized that Hazrat Abu Bakr had said, and he said about Hazrat Abu Bakr that were it permissible to take a human being as a devoted friend, Khalil is the word in Arabic, I would have chosen uh, Abu Bakr, the best friend. Mm. But such love is only permissible for Allah. And Hazrat Umar used to remark later that he said that Hazrat Abu Bakr, and, and it was a comment on this insight that he observed of Hazrat Abu Bakr here because he did not understand at the time. He said Hazrat Abu Bakr was blessed with greater spiritual penetration than we were because he perceived that the Holy Prophet had mentioned his own case and not that of some other devoted servant of God when he was talking about uh, going back to Allah. Indeed, and what was that illness that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which led to his passing away? Well, it is well documented, and it uh, consisted of a headache and a fever. Uh, initially, uh, he continued to lead the prayers despite this uh, this affliction, but when it became too much for him, he instructed that Hazrat Abu Bakr take on this responsibility. Hazrat Aisha, he said, uh, daughter of Hazrat Abu Bakr, his uh, the wife of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, tried to dissuade the Holy Prophet from giving this instruction. She said that her father was of tender heart and would not be able to perform the task due to emotion. Mm. 
but the Holy Prophet insisted. And scholars conclude that this was a clear indication of who the Holy Prophet wanted to assume the leadership of the community after after him, as uh, was that statement when he said, close all the windows, the openings to the mosque, except that of the residents of Hazrat This again is something he mentioned uh, during the closing days of his life. And during uh, this time, uh, one companion, this is, I think it's in one of the authentic books of these, probably uh, Bukhari, um, it's that one companion, Jabal bin Mutim, he says that a woman came to the Holy Prophet during this period, and he advised her to come later. She asked, uh, what if I don't find you? In other words, what if, mm. what, happen, what if you pass away? And the Holy Prophet replied, then go to Abu Bakr. So this is uh, um, well documented. So uh, that's uh, concerning you know, indications about uh, successorship. But uh, the other aspect that was also dealt with here, here was that it was the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to uh, give turns when proceeding uh, to his wife. So each wife had uh, a turn. Uh, one after the other, he would go to the houses. Uh, and he continued do, to do this during the early part of his illness, which lasted a good two weeks. However, when he became very weak, he asked permission from his wife not to go to each of their houses, but to remain in just the one Hazrat Aisha's place. Uh, and uh, they all agreed to this. And it shows that the Holy Prophet, even in these days of sickness, was very mindful of the rights of others, including, as was in this case, his, his wives. Mm. As regards the affairs of the state, he was delegating, uh, delegating uh, but delegations from embassies uh, were still being received, and he tried to keep up with what was going on. He said, treat delegations that will come to you with the same hospitality that I have shown to other delegations. So this was also a period when he had instructed for an army to proceed to Syria, where there was trouble anticipated from the Romans. The army was under uh, Osama bin Zaid, the son of the freed slave of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The army had gathered, but due to the illness, had delayed their departure. Mm. You mentioned of Hazrat Abu Bakr there. Uh, mm. We know that Hazrat Asha was the daughter of Hazrat Abu Bakr. Yeah. And... Uh, a very special companion of the Holy Prophet. Uh, he said that uh, in her company he received the most revelations. Yes. You know, yes. Yeah. For that reason, he was yeah. she was a special companion. Mm. You said that she, he moved uh, to Hazrat Asha's chamber permanently mm. uh, during this last stage. How long was that for? Well, his illness to, in total lasted uh, just over two weeks, uh, so we can uh, guesstimate from the records. He stayed with Hazrat Aisha for a week. Uh, also, uh, and like you mentioned, th- there was a, s- a special bond between Hazrat Aisha. This is despite the the disparity in there; some forty years difference. Mm. Um, and this was also illustrated in what is recorded as to what transpired during that week between the two. At one stage, uh, Hazrat Aisha herself also had a headache and was holding her head, saying, "Oh my head!" She was crying out, "Oh my head! Oh my head!" To which the Holy Prophet smiled and responded, "No, Aisha, not your head. My head. My head." Mm-hmm. Meaning it was his head that was suffering pain. Um, it was not impervious to her pain. Of no, course, no. he was just yes. teasing her that it was his pain that wanted attention. Mm. And then he said that, "Oh, Aisha, uh, what uh, what do you have to lose now if you died? Yeah, I'm still alive. I'll be the one to wash your body, put you in the grave, and pr- uh, pray over you. What could be better uh, for you, or what could be better that you could hope for?" 
And Hazrat Aisha retorted, sure, and after that you'll be free to go to, to your otherwise. So, so there is this to and fro and laughter and smiles and give and take taking place between the two. And this is also an indication of the richness, the um, uh, richness of their relationship. Uh, as Aisha, of course, took very uh, careful care of the Holy Prophet during this illness. When someone entered uh, with a miswak, this is a stick that uh, at that time people used to clean their teeth with. She noticed that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, wanted it. Uh, she requested it from the person who was holding at the time. She took the other end, chewed it, made it soft, and gave it to the Holy Prophet so he could use it. Uh, just one example of uh, the attention that the Hazrat Aisha was giving uh, to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, during this period. She would recite prayers, and it is also mentioned the last surahs of the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. She would reci- recite them a lot and blow over him. Um, a lot of his illness required cooling, no paracetamols or uh, <laughs> antibiotics in those no, days. Not, not all at right. all, yes. So this was uh, combated by, you know, pouring water. There were certain wells that had cool water that was brought. And uh, there was also a cloth that was put over the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, a cloth uh, immersed in water, wet with water. Uh, so this is how uh, his... Uh, a treatment mm-hmm. was done in those days. Love and tender care. Love and tender care. And uh, also brings around, uh, brings shows you the human yeah. aspect of, yes. of the life, doesn't yes. it? Uh, it wasn't some angel, angelic type of no. a, uh, body that he had, but he was very human, and that relationship certainly shows in here. No, no, that's it's very true. What you just said is very true because it features later on as well. All oh, right, okay. This, this aspect of his humanness. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. In this situation of severe illness, was he able to communicate? Was he able to give advice? Was he able to uh, communicate with the rest of the uh, Ummah who must have yes. been close by? So, uh, yes, I mean, his own conduct during this uh, uh, illness uh, gives us lessons uh, in itself. Uh, and we must remember his fever was very intense. As Umar says that he placed his hand on his forehead and suddenly would do it because the Holy Prophet was so hurt, so hot, he was burning with fever. And the Holy Prophet uh, said that uh, uh, to Hazrat Umar at that time, he said that I've been doing tonight, repeating in praise of the Lord, 70 surahs, among them the seven long ones. And Hazrat Umar replied, why not rest and take your ease? For has not the uh, Lord suppressed all your weaknesses? And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied, Why should I not be faithful, a faithful servant uh, unto him? So even in this very difficult period, he was not forgetting uh, his need to be grateful to God Almighty. And then when, of his, when one of his wives mourned of his suffering, the Holy Prophet said that I swear by him in whose hands in my, li- is in my life that there is not upon the earth a believer so afflicted with calamity or disease but the Lord thereby causes his sins to fall off from him, even as he as the leaves fall from a tree in autumn. And at another time he said, suffering is an expiation of sin. If a believer suffers but the scratch of a thorn, the Lord raises his rank thereby and wipes away from him 
a sin. And then he also said, believers are tried according to their faith. If a man's faith is strong, so are his sufferings. If he is weak, they are proportional thereunto. So the Holy Prophet was, you know, very mindful of these kind of aspects. He was also mindful of owning anything at the time of his demise. And during his illness, he remembered that there was some gold in the house. He asked for it to be distributed to the needy needy in charity. And when this was done, he said, now I'm at peace. It would not have become me to meet my Lord and his, this gold still in my hands. Hmm. And the Holy Prophet was very concerned about his grave uh, and how he may be treated afterwards. What was that? So this links to what you were saying earlier about humanness. He was a human being hmm. and he didn't want to be elevated to some kind of a demigod or a god. So this was something that was very uh, that that was of great concern to him, and he certainly did not want uh, his grave to be turned into some kind of a shrine where people go and pray to the grave. And uh, what prompted him to mention this was uh, talk between two of his wives, Umm Salma and Umm Abi. But these wives had both lived uh, in Abyssinia. This is when the persecution in Makkah had reached its height and they had to flee the persecution and take refuge in Abyssinia. They were talking about their time in Abyssinia while the Holy Prophet was there and recounting the beauty of the Cathedral of Mary and the pictures on its walls. And the Holy Prophet heard this and he said, there are, these are the people who, when a saint among them dies, build over his tomb a place of worship and adorn it with their pictures. Let the anger of God be kindled against those that turn the tombs of their prophets into objects of worship. Uh, uh, Lord, let not my tomb ever be an object of worship. So here the Holy Prophet you know, was really concerned about the tendency of human nature to fall prey to such evils of indulging mm. in idolatrous uh, practices, particularly when he came to the grave of those they had come to revere like prophets. And in this respect, it has to be said that his prayer was answered. Uh, his grave is not has not been turned uh, as into an object of worship. But sadly, this cannot be said of many Muslims. I yeah, mean, unfortunately, no. They uh, do pray at shrines they, and yeah. of saints, and uh, they do seek what they are, are desiring from those from saints. The, from the, the and bodies, yeah. it's very interesting that the responses they gave are very similar to the responses the Makkans used to give mm. when they used to pray at idols. So they say that we know there's only one God, but we cannot get to our God directly. We have to pray to these elevated uh, people in order to get our requests, mm. uh, gain currency in front of the Lord. Right. So this is there's nothing, no, no difference. No difference in that. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. They uh, call I, uh, I had a, a, a very a very similar incident. I was returning from Pakistan once many years ago, and I was sat next to a Japanese girl who had gone there to preach mm. Christianity. And in my discussions with her, she asked a question because she'd been to Multan, and she asked me. Why do Muslims pray at graves and ask forgiveness from dead people? Mm. The very point that yeah, you are making. Absolutely. That yeah. is what happens, yep. as, you, as you just pointed out. Yep. The, the very thing the Holy Prophet didn't want, they didn't want it yes. to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it seems that uh, a couple of days before his passing away, the condition of the Holy Prophet sort of improved. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a bit more of what happened? Well, uh, at this time, the fever dissipated somewhat, and uh, so his headache. He was able to walk into the mosque place. According to some reports, he was carried by his uncle Abbas and uh, his uh, cousin 
as it's early into the mosque. But in any case, Fajr prayers had already started. Hazrat Abu Bakr was leading them. And when he noticed the Holy Prophet approaching the front, the first rakat, the first uh, portion of the of the prayer had already been completed. And Hazrat Abu Bakr made way for him to lead, but the Holy Prophet motioned him to continue and sat next to him. Uh, and Hazrat Abu Bakr, as were the other companions, overjoyed to observe this recovery. Remember, there was a lot of uh, concern about the Holy Prophet among the companions. Many, like Abdul Rahman bin Auf and Hazrat Umar, who hadn't got uh, rooms right next to the mosque, mm. had started to camp outside the mosque for days after hearing the of the Holy Prophet's ill health. So there had been a deep concern about his uh, about his con- uh, health, and that was temporarily relieved. Uh, the Holy Prophet uh, then proceeded to the courtyard of the mosque after this prayer and addressed his companions. And he spoke with great emotion and asked if there was anyone who had a claim against him. And he was very insistent on this point. And Bukhari reports him saying, Bukhari is the authentic uh, collection of the sayings of the Holy Prophet. Uh, and um, it, it records if there is, the Holy Prophet said, if there is anybody who has any right I have not fulfilled or any debt that I have not sell, settled, come now and ask me before the day of judgment. And if I've hit anybody unjustly in my whole life, then here is my back. Come and hit me now before the day of judgment. And such was the intensity of, of this these statements again and again that some people then did come forward, not because they wanted to settle claim, but in the hope that this would help alleviate the anxiety of the Holy Prophet over this. So one person, for example, said, you owe me three dinars, and the Holy Prophet asked, how come? And he said that um, on one occasion there was a beggar passing by, and he said, who will give him money on my behalf? And I gave him on your behalf, but you never paid me back. So the Holy Prophet ordered that three dinars be uh, given to him from his uh, from his house. So it was these kinds of you know trivial claims that were coming forward, not because they wanted uh, to get their recompense recompense from the Holy mm. Prophet, but in order to alleviate his yes. anxiety over this. Yeah. And the Holy Prophet said uh, at this point that I have not made lawful anything, excepting that which God has made lawful. Nor have I pro- uh, prohibited except that which uh, God in his book uh, has pro- prohibited. Mm. There's a verse of the Holy Quran that says that do not make unlawful what God has mm. made lawful, yeah. uh, and vice versa. Uh, again, very human yeah. aspect of his uh, life mm. seen in his last few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that as a Fatma, the daughter of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, there was an important exchange between the Prophet uh, and her during his dying days. Can you give us, enlighten us with that? Yes, uh, that uh, was regarding um, um, the, the fact that one is that uh, the father was the only child, surviving child. Okay. Uh, he had other children, they had all passed during, uh, during his lifetime. And uh, the Holy Prophet uh, treated his children with respect. Uh, with, uh, certainly, as uh, Fatima, when she entered the home, he would uh, stand up uh, and uh, uh, he would uh, guide her to a seat. Uh, and uh, of course, when he was ill, he wasn't able to do that. And uh, during these days, when Hazrat Fatima came, on one occasion anyway, um, she was crying. And uh, the Holy Prophet comforted her. Then uh, he beckoned her to come close to him, and he said something to her. And uh, she began to cry again. 
but after a few moments, uh, he asked her to come close to him again and whispered something more. So this time she began to smile and laugh. Now, Hazrat Aisha was looking after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, watching this and wondered what was said. And uh, after uh, this uh, incident, uh, he, he asked Hazrat Fatima as to what transpired, and Hazrat Fatima would not divulge what was said. Mm. She said, no, I'm not going to tell you. But some later, after the Holy Prophet passed away, Hazrat Aisha asked Hazrat Fatima again as to what was exchanged between you two. One conversation that made you cry, another conversation that made you laugh. And, he, and she said that the Holy Prophet, what made me cry was that the Holy Prophet whispered in my ear that uh, Jibreel had come to him twice that year for Ramzan, even though for other years he would only come once. And he said, there is no other explanation of this except it seems that my time has come. So that's why I began to cry. And uh, as Aisha said, okay, what about uh, <coughs> what he whispered when that made you laugh and smile? And she said, um, he said to me, you shall be the first of my family to meet me and you shall be the leader of the women of Jannah. So that's why I smiled out of joy. So this was quite prophetic and it did mm. uh, unfold as was predicted as a Fatima. Uh, was indeed the first member of the family to pass away after the demise of the Holy Prophet, and she died less than six months afterwards. In uh, um, after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. In what were the last moments of the Holy Prophet's life? Well, uh, after attending sad, sad demise. Yes, add, yeah. sad demise. Yes. So uh, after the attending the prayers in the morning, um, he was taken uh, to Hazrat Aisha Sabda. So this is uh, prayers on um, Saturday. And the Holy Prophet suffered that day and throughout the night. So on Sunday morning, he was agitated at what was still in the house by way of money and uh, made Hazrat Aisha search the house to see if there's anything of value that has been left. And she said that there were seven silver coins. And the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, asked for these to be distributed to the poor. Yeah, he went into unconsciousness, then he regained consciousness, and then he asked again if the money had been uh, distributed. And as Aisha, because she had been looking after him, uh, had not done it, but uh, such was the anxiety of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, over this, that as Aisha immediately attended to this and distributed to this to some uh, to to the poor. So uh, this is now Sunday. And on Monday morning, he felt a little better and was able to stand. And it is said that uh, he moved the curtain that separated his chamber from the mosque. As he lifted it, he could observe his companions gathered, uh, gathered offering fajr prayers in congregation. He was too weak to join them, but was extremely pleased. Pleased because this sight represented what Allah had enabled him to achieve to bring an idol-ridden worshippers to be bound together in the worship of the one God. So it must have been a sight of much delight and satisfaction to him. Thereafter, it is said, during the rest of the course of the day, um, he laid down. Hazrat Aisha, noting his weakness, uh, raised his head from the pillow. And as he sat, uh, as she sat by him on the ground, she laid his head uh, on herself. Uh, his strength began to diminish. He kept going in and out of consciousness during this uh, last uh, few minutes. 
And at this point, the uh, Holy Prophet raised his eyes up and was repeating something. And as Aisha leaned down and reports, she heard the Prophet say, with those whom Allah has blessed, the prophets, the truthful, and the martyrs, and the righteous. An excellent company are they. And these are verses that are found in the chapter 4, verse, uh, um, verse 70 of the Holy Quran. And then the world, words are Rafiq al-Ala, al-Ala, which means to the blessed companionship on high, to the blessed companionship on high. And with these words, he stretched himself gently, and then all was still. The Holy Prophet had breathed his last. It was Monday, the 12th of Rabi'ul Awwal, in the 11th year of Hijrah, 8th of June, 632, to you and me. Uh, uh, the greatest man in history had departed from this world in person only because the teaching and example he had set was to live forever. A sad uh, end. Uh, the companions must have uh, felt it um, most because uh, they were the, his close companions mm. who had sacrificed a lot and he was uh, he died in his second 40, uh, 62nd year yes 62nd having, 63rd yes. having yeah. received the yeah. revelation to be a prophet at the age mm. of 40 mm. indeed a uh, remarkable life yes I think what we could do next show really, mm. is uh, uh, look at the views of people outside of Islam yes. on what they thought of Prophet Muhammad yeah, that'll be very useful. Yeah. Okay. Right. Jazakallah, uh, Walid, for an engrossing narration of the Holy Prophet's life. We are now coming up to the 11 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Right, Walid, uh, hmm. we're uh, back to our show. Our next segment of the show is Behind the Headlines. Just been called for Donald Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been reversed. should call a general election. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the Headlines. La ikraha fiddin Qad tabayyana rushdu min al-ghayt Chapter 2, verse 257, you mentioned earlier about that verse, Philippe, hmm. uh, from the Holy Quran. Chapter 2 is uh, Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah says, there, is, there should be no compulsion in religion. Surely the right has become distinct from wrong. So whoever refuses to be led by those who have transgressed and believes in Allah has surely grasped a strong handle which knows no breaking. And Allah is all hearing, all knowing. Uh, well, it, the term hijab, mm. as explained in the Wikipedia, is used in the Quran to donate partition, a curtain, or is sometimes used for the Islamic rules of modesty, and often refers to a head covering worn by most Muslim women. Uh, in several countries uh, in Europe, uh, the adherence to the job has led to political contro- controversies and proposals for a ban, a legal ban. Laws have been passed in France and Belgium to ban face covering clothing, popularly described as the burqa ban, although it does not apply to the hijab. 
What else do they say? Well, other countries are debating similar legislation or have more limited prohibitions. In Iran, women have been protesting, demanding the hijab or chador to be voluntary and not compulsory, with thousands protesting in many Iranian cities. Mm. Uh, Sorry, go on. Carry on. Uh, while earlier this year, The Guardian had a heading, uh, When Will Women Feel Safe on UK Streets? Yes, uh, the article, what did it say? It said, uh, what has been described as an epidemic of sexual harassment, primarily against girls and women, has slowly been revealing itself in the last few months in this country. And millions of people are angry. Yes, they continue. They say a sense of the scale of this abuse became evident when the website Everyone's Invited, which encourages survivors to share their stories, revealed thousands of testimonies, many from school-aged girls, cataloging abuse ranging from unwanted sexual comments, cyber uh, flashing, which is sending off unsolicited explicit images, and harassment to sexual assault and rape. So the question that we're asking is, are women being abused by the system? And why is it that there is a serious safety issue in the West and countries like Iran? Uh, so two faces, uh, the Western world, the Islamic world, but issues for women are equally uh, of concern. Mm. So let's hear uh, a couple of uh, clips. One from the ban of hijab in India, where the colleges and schools were trying to stop Muslim women wearing the head covering. Over, over one month, over a span of one month, what we saw is that colleges after colleges in Udupi district started banning hijab and asking Muslim women to not come wearing the hijab or else they would not be allowed. We have seen uh, images of, of college gate being shut on the faces of Muslim women by the principal of the college. And all of this is happening in the backdrop of uh, the rising Islamophobia and how uh, Muslim m Muslims are being segregated. A very eloquent young lady in India, a Muslim lady who uh, shows concerns of what was happening. And likewise, when uh, in France the hijab ban was being promoted, uh, particularly by the far-right Le Pen uh, party, uh, this is what some French Muslim women had to say. This law has no reason to be because I don't see what the problem is with the burqa. As long as it respects everybody's freedom, I don't see the problem. Having said that, in public places like the post office or the town hall, if they ask to take the burqa off for an identity check, it's no worries. I think everyone is free to do what they want, and I don't think it's normal that we ban it. It's true that personally I'm not used to seeing women wearing burqas, and it shocks me a little because it gives an image of submission. I wouldn't say that it's normal because it's always disturbing not to see somebody's full face. But if we do it in this case, why not make laws for people who don't like red high heels or because they don't? Uh, I think we had some sound issues there, so apologies for that. But there were some non-Muslims also commenting about the ban and uh, going against the, what, what was being done. So supporting those who wanted to wear it. So it was basically giving Muslims the choice, uh, Muslim women the choice, what they wanted to do. Now, joining us this morning um, is Melissa Ahmadi from Manchester, a young lady who accepted Islam and now wears a hijab and a promoter of women's rights in Islam. Assalamu alaikum, Melissa. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. 
Yes, thank you for having me. No, no, thank you for joining us. Uh, you heard some of the things that we uh, we mentioned about women's rights, both from a religious perspective and from a non-religious perspective. We've yeah. got a situation where uh, women who wear the hijab uh, are being uh, condemned. I remember watching uh, various TV programs where it was put out that as if women are being forced. And then in Iran, we see the situation where the women are being forced to wear the hijab and women are fighting against that. Now, you are a hijab-wearing woman, but uh, you were not always wearing it. Can you tell us uh, or tell our listeners how you came about wearing the hijab? What, what made you want to become a Muslim? Yeah, so I converted to Islam when I was about 13 years old. So wow, I was very a young. young teenager. Yeah, mm. quite young. So um, That's impressive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, my older sister converted first, so I was sort of following her lead, mm. um, so to speak. But I I could see it for myself. The reason why I chose Islam was the example that was put before me by those in the community was that of love, respect tolerance and also personal choice as well and um, all the women that I've ever met actually who choose to wear the headscarf which I did decide to do myself when I was 13 nearly 14 and mm-hmm. um, it's always been an issue of them wanting to and their personal decision and their personal choice so when I hear of you know stories of people being forced mm. um, for me that seems like a quite an alien concept because Perhaps here in this country, we are very lucky to have the freedom to be able to choose and decide for ourselves. And, and in that respect, the law does not impede our ability to choose, which I think is, is one of the many great things about the UK living in this country. Um, but yeah, for me, definitely it was personal choice and it was not it was not something that was put upon me by anyone or any system. Yeah, indeed. And often it is said the husbands make their wives wear it, etc. And that could never be the case with you because you started wearing the hijab before you were ever married. So, which is, uh, uh, I think, maybe an eye-opener for people who don't realize it. And I remember uh, during the 9-11 incident, a very tragic incident, unfortunately, for those who were killed and and an evil uh, attack by the perpetrators who carried out that uh, th- those attacks. Uh, but there were many debates on uh, on TV we listened to, on radio that we listened to, and where you had the politicians or uh, uh, the, the I would say the white population coming on TV and saying that the women are being forced to wear the hijab. You know, even the prime minister at the time, Boris Johnson said they look like letterboxes, you know, inciting this uh, uh, anger towards women wearing the hijab. But despite that propaganda at the time, more Muslims started to wear the hijab. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? You know, uh, so the the media is propagating that women are being forced to wear it. And suddenly we see a rise of women wearing hijab. I was working at the Kingston University at the time. And only a handful of girls used to wear a, a hijab of some sort. When, when 9-11 happened within a very short while, suddenly we saw hordes of girls wearing the hijab. So um, what would be the process of, of that? Um, would that be something that is being said that is wrong, which is encourage people to come out and then start wearing the hijab? 
I mean, for me personally, during 9-11, I was only six, <laughs> six years old at that time. So for me, it, the effects that were felt from 9-11 for me personally were, were much later. Mm. Um, and that sort of manifested, yeah, through, you're right, through the mainstream media sort of perpetuating those negative stereotypes that Muslim women may be uh, oppressed or, or submissive. But we just know this not to be true. And for me personally, it's just not not the truth in in my eyes yeah but i think um you know when people in power uh make derogatory comments um i suppose every action has a reaction and i can't speak to you know women choosing to wear a headscarf in in sort of uh, a reactionary response to 9-11 but i think there was a feeling that muslim women wanted to reclaim their identity mm. um and to not always be told you know from the outside outlets in the media the mainstream media who were you know saying very negative things about muslim women and often continue to have these sort of maybe more subtle now but it's still prevalent in the media now um so i think yeah there, there probably was a shift on the basis of 9 11 um for Muslim women wanting to reclaim their their hijab or their headscarf as something that is that is positive, something yeah. that is their own choice. Hmm. Um, I think when people in the media sort of put Muslim women in a negative light, there is always a, a reactionary response that Muslim women want to sort of come out and defend Islam as a religion of peace, which it it is. Which it is absolutely, and and I presume when 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 our when when, our, when Muslim women saw the TV and saw you know, white faces saying to them that these women are being oppressed and they're being forced to wear the hijab, when they saw when they heard that and thinking, hang on, that's not true. I've never been forced to wear it. I've never been told to wear it. I'm not wearing it now. Uh, maybe. Uh, I should be. Maybe it, it opened the question, and people started to wear it for that reason. And the ironic thing was that at the time they would hardly ever bring a Muslim woman who wore a hijab to comment on it, uh, and it was all a one-sided approach. And maybe that was the reaction, as you have just uh, just said, that every uh, action has a reaction, and and that's that's what it was. Uh, what about? I mean, with my own daughters, um, my one of my my elder daughter, in fact, was uh, after her GCSEs uh, when she started the sixth form, she decided to wear the hijab, uh, not for my saying, but for her own choice. And my elder, younger daughter went when she went to university. That's when she started wearing it. So different ages, mm. different times, as you have just mentioned about yourself and your sister. What about yeah. what what is happening in Iran? You, you, so here we have nine eleven, where women are being forced not to wear it, and more women start wearing it. Now in Iran, we seem to have the opposite. Uh, women are being forced to wear the hijab, uh, uh, but it appears that women don't want to. They want to remove it. So it's having an opposite reaction over there. What does that say about rights of women then in, in light of these two uh, incidences? Yeah, so I think if if we're comparing, I mean, the, the situation in Iran is very precarious at the moment and it is changing all the time. Um, we actually did a show on this a few weeks ago for the Pathway to Peace and we, we looked at this much more broadly. So if anyone's interested, they can absolutely listen to that as well. But I mean, the Holy Quran gives guidance that it is for the discretion of the followers basically, whether they choose to follow this guidance. And the hijab is not is not given as something that must be forced or, you know, com other, other people are to compel women by force to wear it. 
that was never sort of the intention behind the guidance and the idea that the state can control or mm -hmm. implement a dress code is actually very contradictory to the, the freedom of belief and choice that Islam laid out in the first place. And I mean, if we're if we're comparing Iran, for example, to France, as was previously mentioned, um, as a comparison, it, it, it's the same issue. It's the issue of choice. Um, I mean, a state cannot impose uh, what a woman can and can't wear. Um, that that, as we can see, has very negative impacts and um, it has very negative consequences for for people on both sides of the coin whether muslim women are refused the right to wear it in public space in some public spheres in france as is the same in in india as well there are muslim girls and and young women stopped from wearing stopped from coming to school even mm. because they wear a headscarf so i mean this issue of choice is actually the root of what we're talking about today and for me I feel that, you know, state controlling what a woman can and can't wear, um, it takes away from the, the personal sentiments of why women actually do choose to wear it, which is, is for God, ultimately. It's an expression of faith. And for you personally, what does the hijab mean to you and why do you feel uh, that it adds to your faith? I mean, for me personally, because I am a convert, I am of a white British background. So for me personally, it gives me that sort of identity that when I'm out and about going about my daily business, that I am an identifiable Muslim mm -hmm. woman. And, and that's something that I am very proud of. It's not something that I feel I should hide or be worried about how people are going to receive me. Um, and it has and continues to open up many doors of conversation about faith and belief and um, about freedom and women's rights. I'm, I'm often having these conversations with people that I do meet because it invites that curiosity. Mm -hmm. So for me, it is very much about identity, but it is also a, a part of my faith, which I do feel is important for me to express. So not only does it in, 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 uh, gives you the freedom, but it also gives you opportunities to promote your faith as well because people ask you and, and inquire from you. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say that the hijab has given you personally, uh, which uh, you might not have had if you were not wearing the hijab? Um, so speaking personally, I think if I didn't wear it... Um, people wouldn't wouldn't know whether I was Muslim or not. And that's important for me because I think it there are a lot of things that I don't engage in as a Muslim woman. So for example, um I don't drink alcohol. So that I think has saved me throughout my university experience and um early sort of student life where I haven't um it's never really been a question as to whether or um, you know, social pressure can be a, quite a difficult thing for a lot oh, of for a lot of young people. Indeed. And I think sometimes wearing the scarf has been a very poignant um, sort of symbol to know to give people the indication that actually this is not something that I sort of engage in, or this this behaviour, or this activity, or certain environments uh, is not something that I engage in. So in that way, it sort of speaks for me, which is brilliant and has saved me from many things many awkward situations should we say yeah um, but i think aside from that it's it's a sense of it's a badge of faith it's a badge of honor and it is a privilege to be able to wear it freely um without too much negative attention which i know muslim women do endure in other countries for for reasons that we've mentioned before 
So it prevents you from being fall, being a victim of uh, peer pressure, uh, of, yeah. of society's pressures as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something throughout my, my teenage years and sort of early 20s, it's, it's really helped me along. And I think in some ways, you know, Muslim women, women are very brave and very courageous mm. for, for wearing it in whatever context they wear it. Um, because of the um, the rife Islamophobia that has occurred since 9/11, so I think it is a it is a badge of a badge of faith and a badge of honour in that sense. Mm. What, what what about the situation in Iran where women by law have to wear the hijab, and there's much hue and cry in the West about uh, the women being forced, and there was this sad death. Of a, of a young lady who got uh, killed by the forces, by the authorities, uh, because she was not wearing the hijab, according to them, properly. Uh, what would you say to those uh, uh, those who comment on, on what is happening in Iran? How does What is the Islamic perspective about women being forced to wear the hijab? Or it should be out of choice, or it should be out of... Uh, the uh, the laws of the land. I think it's important that um, whenever we sort of raise our voices and speak out on injustices, that we are fair to all parties. Um, I mean, it's one thing to um, sort of you know make an make a statement about it being wrong that it that it is forced upon women, and and it should never be forced upon women. And and what happened to that uh, dear lady in Iran? Mm. Um, was terrible and that should have never happened but also at the same time I do think it's important that we we speak out to the injustice of sort of women in other countries who are prevented the freedom from being able to choose to wear it as well so I think it's a matter of using our using our voices to speak out on as injustice in whatever form it it takes um, and perpetuating the idea that you know Islam does not force or compel women to do anything, actually. The guidance is there. However, it is it is up to an individual whether they choose to take up that guidance. And, you know, we could go into a lengthy discussion about <laughs> politics, but I think ultimately, ultimately the issue is choice here. And, and women have been speaking out about having the freedom to choose is a very important thing. I think you've explained that very eloquently. And uh, the verse that we played at the beginning from chapter 2, verse 257, there should be no compulsions in matter of faith. Surely right has become distinct from wrong. Clearly puts uh, the, the onus on the individual to decide what is good for them and what is right for them. The guidance is there from the Holy Quran. And those who want to accept it, uh, if they follow that, they will be guided towards the best of things. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, in terms of uh, the hijab as a society, what do you think the hijab brings to women uh, and to the society at large? I think from a societal perspective, obviously, I have my own personal reasons for wearing it, as well as, you know, identity and all of these things. Um, it is a part of faith. It's a, it's a well-known phrase that modesty is a part of faith, mm. which is a saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And that not just applies to women, that also applies to men as well. And I think when we are discussing issues of sort of, you know, what happened in Iran, which was uh, male violence against women and unfortunately had a very tragic end. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the root of what we're talking about is is choice, but it's also 
um, a hijab for what it brings to society. It's, it's the freedom to choose to express how you want to mm. dress yourself, how you want to appear in public. I think it it sort of directly, especially now um, in society anyway, where there is a lot of pressure from various different angles to look a certain way, um, for women especially, but also for men. Um, this idea that modesty is a part of faith and reclaiming actually what you wish to share with the world, what what you want to show of yourself. And I mean, you know, hair is often depicted as a as a sign of beauty. But I think beyond that, it's it's about reclaiming what you wish other people to see of yourself and actually not adhering to societal norms of, of what society deems beautiful, for example actually you know saving that for who you choose to share it with and i think that's that's something that is that is quite important and that's what the hijab brings to society and i mean hijab is not just sort of limited um to a woman wearing a headscarf the idea of modesty at large also applies to men so it I does in fact it yeah. addresses the men first before it addresses yeah. the women L- yeah. to the men it says lower your gaze uh, and, and to the women likewise but with the addition of wearing the hijab. Uh, and, and you mentioned about uh, what happened in Iran uh, by the authorities to this uh, innocent lady. Uh, but likewise, in Britain, we have the opposite situation where we had the killing of a young lady by a police officer uh, who was off duty, um, walking along uh, in the late night. Um, so the women's rights seem to be attacked whether you live in a in an Islamic police state or in a non-Islamic police state in the Western culture as well. What is it that uh, is causing this, uh, this situation for the women that they can't be safe in the society? What is Islam's response in how to, compre- how to uh, sort of um, encompass that and bring about safety for women? Yeah, I think it goes back to what you mentioned before. I mean, you mentioned the example of Sarah Everard, who was yes. a very high-profile sort of case, which got national attention. And in reality, there are, there are women, really sadly and tragically, it happens all the time. Um, we just don't hear about those cases so much. So, I mean, there's of course, there's lots of amazing charities doing incredible work, Women's Aid, Refuge, um, sort of provide that support for, for after, you know, that, that sort of behavior has occurred Mm. but i think islam takes a very preventative approach against um violence against women in particular particular particularly male violence against women i mean the holy prophet was recorded to have said um consort with um your wives or your women in kindness this is something that is mentioned in the holy quran in chapter four um and the he also is narrated to have said the best among you is he who is best in treatment of his wife for example so the foundation, I think, lies in um, violence against women is is can be approached in many different ways. But ultimately, male behavior is addressed first. It is addressed first in the Holy Quran as well. Um, and I think that that's what it comes down to is, is addressing the behavior from from the root rather than sort of, um, you know, after after the, the fact has happened. Mm. And uh, we also heard of the two women in Solihull killed, uh, Renimu Day and her mother Kholal Salim, uh, killed by a, a, a strange husband. Um, 
again, domestic violence is another issue that women have to face and confront more than men do. Yes. I mean, we saw during COVID that the rates of domestic violence rapidly increased. Um, so this is not something that is a Muslim issue. It is actually a societal issue, that a worldwide issue, actually, violence against women. Mm. And it is something that um, Islam seeks to prevent um, rather than treat sort of the after the aftermath, so to speak, of it. So, yes, that is sort of where I, I think that you make a very uh, pertinent point that this is not a Muslim issue, just like grooming gangs is not a Muslim issue, it's a societal issue, and there are more domestic violence by non-Muslims uh, as there are more grooming gangs of non-Muslim nature as well. Uh, but Islam tries to bring about a situation where this is reduced to the maximum and this is one of the functions of the hijab, is it not? I think um, there, are, there are many different reasons for why the hijab is sort of a guidance for women. Um, within the Holy Quran, it is so that women may be recognized. So that is, that is one thing that is particularly mentioned, mm -hmm. that a Muslim woman may be identified for her, for, for her morals and for her sort of identity as a Muslim woman. That is one aspect. Yes, of course, modesty plays into it um, as well. Um, but I do think that from the perspective of Islam, I mean, we have ample guidance from the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community. His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad continues to give guidance addressing both men and women on, on this issue of, um, you know, male violence against women mm. and how to prevent and address that. So I think from that perspective, it is a, it, it requires all parties to sort of speak out and to continue to address really bad and negative um, behaviour in society and sort of root it out that way as well. I think the, you summarize it very well that uh, the message of Islam is to provide a cohesive society where rules and regulations are, are set so that the society works better and more humanely as well. And I think what you were just explained about the hijab has, uh, has exemplified that wonderfully. Thank you very much for joining us, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, Right, Raleigh. I think it's an interesting debate that uh, the rights of women seem to be the domain of men to decide <laughs> when, when, when they're not. No. And, and when Islam uh, clearly states that, and Melissa was explaining many of those aspects, when it uh, puts uh, and explains the different roles men and women have in society, the Western world t tends to criticize that. Uh, in trying to make men, uh, women and uh, men equal in the mm. sense that they're of equal moral capacities when it's not talking of that. Mm. It recognizes the difference between them, but in the eyes of Allah, they are both equal because mm. the Holy Quran in many places talks about believing men and believing women will find a place of abode in paradise, mm. believing men and believing women yeah. who pay charity and, and look after us will be given place of abode in paradise. And continually keeps on saying that. But mm. as far as the physical conduct is concerned, they are given different roles. Yeah. And Islam recognizes that. Mm. And maybe the West sometimes is failing on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and hence why we see in Western world there is far greater uh, abuse of women in terms of deaths and attacks and domestic violence than sometimes in our well, Western world. Certainly, no, very well said, absolutely.
Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Right. I think we're coming to the last segment of our show today. It's a longer one. I wonder why. Because mm. of uh, the great tournament that's about to take place. Weekend World. Sports Review. Right, Willie, joining us this morning is Shahid Khan, ex-England Hockey International, now journalist, and also Shahid Alone, who runs a youth football team here in the United Kingdom, looking after the youth. Uh, a great course, as always. Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome, Slam. Good morning, Slam Thank you for joining us. Let's let's start with a couple of short clips. He just take it in turns to give an exhibition. Jairzinho, number seven. Pele. Up comes Carlo Alberto on the right. And it's four! Oh, that was sheer delightful football. And another one from 1986. Hoddle, given away cheaply again. Maradona brilliantly just gets away from Reed and now motors up through the gears and he's beaten Butcher and he's beaten Fennec. It's Diego Maradona and it is quite magnificent. If there was an element of doubt about the first goal, there's no controversy about that moment of genius from Diego Maradona. Two goals in four minutes and Argentina lead England 2-0. A goal of breathtaking quality. Waltzing through the England midfield, drawing the defence, rounding the goalkeeper. Mm, gentlemen, hair-curling stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. It's, it's what football brings, the World Cup brings to you sometimes. Uh, the World Cup's always so exciting, and we just had the commentary of the two, probably the two greatest goals, one from 1970 from uh, Carlos Alberto for Brazil. And the 19, famous 1986 goal from Diego Maradona. A um, lot of controversy, uh, boys, from uh, about the Qatar being awarded the World Cup. And it seems some Western nations not very happy a bit late in the day, isn't it, uh, to be complaining? Uh, Shahid first. Indeed, I think this was the case when the World, the World Cup was awarded to Qatar some time ago, which 11 years ago, I understand. And ever since, I mean, this has been boiling to the forefront because of the many issues that they had with the World Cup being held. First of all, I mean, the timing of the World Cup during the uh, winter season or the actual European season, uh, giving a break at the time when the, perhaps the leaves were boiling up and so forth. And in the past, they've had these uh, winter breaks and that. But to hold it in the so-called uh, winter time in UK, in, sorry, in Europe, uh, and then the, the, normally it coincides with the summer, and then I think they have a different kind of concept about football in some other countries. And here was a country, for the first time it's been given to a Muslim country, and now then everything has come to the fore recently because of other controversies. Now we are talking about the human rights issues and so forth. And I think somehow the gloss has been taken away from my liking from the World Cup, and I think the, the uh, focus has shifted away from the game itself, which it should have been done. I mean, this should have been long, long time ago. And all the controversy then at the time about Sepp Platter saying that they, they deserved it at the time and so forth. Now to say 
they, they shouldn't shouldn't have got it. I think it just actually has taken away the clause from the football mm. from my kind, my point of view. Yeah, Shazal, uh, I mean, your views yeah. on the same thing, but we, but we also had the same during when Russia was awarded. There was a lot of campaign from some of these European countries. Uh, hardly yeah. any complaints from the South Americans or others, mostly from the European nations. Yeah, look, I think when you when you look at the process of, of bidding that was uh, done for this World Cup, I mean, this was done in 2010. So this is eight years ago. And I think the fact that, you know, we, I think we've understood more over time, unfortunately, how corrupt FIFA was, especially in that era. Mm. And I think we have to accept that fact. And um, one of the, the, uh, the stats that I looked at was that out of the 22 committee members who voted for this World Cup to be in Qatar, 11 have been suspended mm. or fined or banned for life. So I think, look, decisions were made, but I think we have to accept it um, and make the, the most of it. And I think if you look at um, football globally, you know, there was a time when Europe was, was the, you know, the holder of football. Mm. And then it was sent out to Europe. It went out to South America. And the game has grown. I think you know, um, it's time to, you know, to allow other countries and continents to host what is the global game. And, and it's better for football, is it not? Uh, Willie, what do you think? Uh, for other nations to be involved in the World Cup, not just the rich American, South American and the uh, European teams. Yes, certainly it's a, it's a universal sport, sport, and if you want to reflect that, then you have to have uh, these uh, competitions in uh, other parts of the world. And this was one of the thinking behind awarding it to Qatar. Yeah. Um, I thought the spirit of awarding to them was the right one, yeah. but maybe in, uh, there were some other issues with, to do with FIFA rather mm. than Qatar. But then the, the press, there's a press hysteria as well that has suddenly cropped up. Mm. That is also uh, somewhat suspicious as to why it has happened now and right. not uh, during the 11 years or 12 years uh, since the award was uh, was given. And uh, it also is similar to what was uh, happening when uh, during the run-up to the Brazil World Cup. There was, I don't know whether you remember, but there was a lot of talk about Stay, malaria. Yeah. There was talk about... Stadiums not going to be ready yes, and things like that. And the, the disparity in society so that exists, yeah. yeah, the flavelas or whatever they yeah. were, yeah. Um, so this is, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, press mischief, I would say. Right. You're a journalist, Shahid. He's <laughs> saying you, you, you lot are mischief makers. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to be said about that. I totally agree with what Lisa was saying mm. about the fact that the media have brought this frenzy about. And, and let's not forget, I mean, they keep talking about politics should be kept separately and so forth. I mean, even in the 90, you mentioned about the uh, World Cup in eight, four years ago in Russia. I mean, there was some things going on at the time as well, and not to this extent, perhaps. Uh, but also other uh, other boycotts have taken place. I mean, I remember the Hockey World Cup in the Olympic team in 1980 when it boycotted the Olympics in Moscow. Mm. So these things do come at the end, and the last minute the England Great Britain team did not go to that because of that boycott. And, I mean, people had that option as well. But here we are, global uh, sport, and being affected badly at a time when I think people, like you have said, that it's, it's a global sport. Mm. And I think every country needs to be. And the fact that Qatar, I think, are mentioning this fact as well, uh, that they're also part of this global so-called uh, sporting uh, world. Yeah. And so it should not be denied. It's the fact that it should take place in the summer. It should only be in Europe and so forth. I mean, th that is a lot to be said. But obviously... Uh, having said all that, I mean, that's, I think we should now really 
focus on the sport itself. Absolutely. And, and I think the president, FIFA president, uh, Gianni Infantino, has uh, come out to fighting um, and put the cat amongst the pigeons. Let's hear what he, what he says. Every day and every day to read all these critics for decisions which have been taken 12 years ago when nobody of, there, of us was, was there. And now everyone knows that we have to make the best out of it, and we have to make the best World Cup ever. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Uh, Shazil, that was not expected by the media or the European football nations that uh, Gianna Infantino would come out and say something as strong as that, and he really did put it in, didn't he? He did. I mean, look, I think uh, you know, he speaks as a, you know, a, a head of a global entity at the end of the day. FIFA doesn't belong to any one particular continent. I think he was there in, in, in uh, defending what uh, they've done, the decisions that are taken, and they're making the best of it. And I think, look, you had Pep Guardiola say something very similar when we had the George Floyd murder, and he talked about you know, um, in America, how, you know, whites should be apologizing to blacks for a number of years, etc. And I think uh, what Infantino said wasn't far different from that. Mm, so, point. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, you, you mentioned about politicizing uh, the sport. Uh, a lot of the players and coaches, it appears, are being pressurized by the media. Uh, to become politicized by asking them to give interviews after post-match interviews and, and beforehand and wearing these rainbow uh, armbands, arm etc. Arm uh, 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 are, are they trying to politicize the players? I think uh, one of the English players has come out. Is that I, look, I play football. I, I don't do politics. Hmm. I'm just here to play football. Why I, you know, I don't want to get involved in all this politics side of things. Indeed, I think there has always been this rule about the fact that you can't portray this yourself, portray this in on the pitch itself. I mean, people have been banned for having different kinds of logos on their T-shirts and so forth, even after the match. But mm. here we are. I mean, the England team going on in a rainbow, so-called plane and so forth. So they, they definitely have politicized it. And then to be wearing these bands or whatever they are, uh, to be honest with you, I think this is against the spirit of the game, of sport anyway. And like you said, they have politicized it, no doubt. And there has been pressure, like you said, not just on the players, but also on the managers and so forth, as far as the press conference is concerned and so forth. Uh, so definitely, this I think it's too much pressure coming from different angles mm. and not just from the uh, to be put on the players as well as uh, the, the sporting staff as well. This would certainly put pressure on the lesser countries not to hold the World Cup, Shazil. Yeah, look, I think, you know, especially when it comes from a cultural perspective, because it seems like there's very much a Muslim element uh, to this. Mm. And I think that's why this reaction has been so vehement, because I think I saw Hugo Lloris, who's the captain of uh, France, he said even when people come to France, there are certain conditions we expect of visitors. Why would you not expect that when you go to another country? And he's not going to be wearing the uh, rainbow captain's armband. So I think... Where it's appropriate, you know, and people do have a yeah. view, perhaps, and the um, intelligence to back it up, fine, go ahead and make your comment. But I think asking people like Harry Kane and Gareth Bale, mm. they're not the sharpest tools in the pencil box. <laughs> <laughs> 
very, very diplomatic. <laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> well, it, in terms of politicizing, mm. they often quote South Africa, and they were banned, right? Now, the situation there was that the players were dis- discriminated against. This is what the bans were about. The Basil Dolavira wasn't allowed to go and play in South mm. Africa, mm. being a South Black South African, etc. So the situation is different here. None of the players are being discriminated against. No. All have got the right to go there. So why why should this be compared with South Africa? It shouldn't be. It's double standards anyway. Um, you you know it, it's the same thing that we were talking about earlier about imposing uh, your own views. Mm wanting them to be embraced by those that do not share those views and then kicking up a fuss over it. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Okay, let's move on. As uh, Gianni Infantino says, let's talk sport, he says. This is what it's about. Uh, Shahid, uh, uh, Shahzal? One thing thing before you go on to the sport. One thing uh, thing I did like, the Qatar actually are, to some extent, uh, holding their own ground in the sense that Things like the the alcohol ban and stuff. I think that they were trying their best to uh, do the best part of it. And I, I heard also the fact that even when the azan is being called, the music is being stopped and things like that. So I'm great that I'm grateful that the Qatar are in some extent mm. pushing back on this as well. So to some extent, I, I take the side on this as well. I, I think they ought to be congratulated for holding their ground Absolutely. and not and not uh, falling under yeah, pressure. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so the football now, um, Shazil. Uh, the best teams don't always win, do they? Any teams no. you can think of that should have won but didn't? Uh, I think the one that stands out, and I've seen it just more from highlights as opposed to watching it live myself, but 1982 Brazil, I'm sure uh, everyone will talk about mm. them as, as the standout side that never won the World Cup. But they'll probably be more remembered than some of the sides that have won the World Cup. Shahid, you would know more uh, from previous years as well and more recent. Um, Holland, possibly yeah, think, 74. Holland, I think the side that they had in 74, I think they were, I think, every any every team that uh, was the second team at the time, mm. uh, a great team that they had. And unfortunately, they couldn't make it in that uh, 74 World Cup or to the final anyway with West Germany winning that. So they were a good side, or not a good side, but a very, very good side who didn't actually make the the big game the winners. Yeah. Some said the nineteen sixty six Portugal side should have won the World <laughs> Cup. Yeah, I what think to Xavier? some extent Eusebio I think is the top scorer at the time, yeah, that's right. I mean yeah. he was one man show to be honest with you. But uh yeah, I think uh, at home perhaps England had that advantage at the time that in those days it used to be the host nation and very really won it. Mm. So yeah, in fact I remember that was the first game that I watched on television black and white at the time in nineteen sixty six. Uh, in the final anyway, but Portugal were a very good side indeed at the time. West Germany tradition. Ironically, that was the game I saw for the first time in Nairobi. Yeah, I was. Oh, only, right. Yeah, I was only eight years old, I think, or something like that. Uh, well, Shazal, in your time, uh, Argentina two thousand and six with Messi. Uh, two thousand and six, probably not. I would say um, mm. Messi was a good player, and look, he is a good player, but. Unfortunately, he hasn't reached the standards of winning a World Cup. He's no. played in five. Yeah. So it's not like he's not had chances. And I think that 06 side had people like um, um, Tevez alongside him. He had good players around him and always has done. And mm. that's why you can't... Because the first World Cup, you talked about your memories of your first World Cup. The, 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 the first one I remember is probably the best I've ever seen was 1986 and Maradona's performance. Mm. Um, you know, And he was a standout player with, with very little around him. So that's why I think 06 Messi, for me, doesn't match up. 
to what Maradona is. Mm. No, indeed. And and sure, and, Maradona, uh, coming back on Maradona, oh, sorry, on Messi, I think you mentioned, mentioned the fact that Maradona was outstanding. One thing I did, uh, any stats on that, I'm quite surprised that he's only six, scored six goals in four World Cups, Messi. So I, I was quite yeah. astounded by that. It is, yeah. It's never been considered for the Golden Boot. Well, it, yeah. you, you remember the 1970 World Cup and uh, we had Pele. Yes. Uh, but they had great players around him. But Pele stood up a mile even then. But but even with comparison with all the great players around him. No, no, there were good good players around him. I mean, the Stau and Jairzinho and Rivellino. All, all, all involved in that goal we just heard. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Rivellino was involved in that one. Uh, no, he was. was, he he was yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, he got the ball on the way. Okay. But they, they, these were good players. Uh, yeah, but, but Pele stood out. Everyone talked of Pele. Yes, didn't yes they, they right? stood out. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so this World Cup, uh, you boys, um, which are the teams to be w- w- looking out for? The, the same run-of-the-mill teams or are there some <laughs> new ones to look out for? Well, it is South American teams, obviously, Brazil and Argentina, obviously, I think, going right to the top once again. I mean, they've been the most successive, successful teams in the World Cup. So, having Brazil having won five times and uh, Argentina three, is it, or four? So, twice, uh, twice only, sorry. Mm. And uh, the fact that Argentina have been in final and semi final more times than any other team uh, or, uh, won it as well. So they obviously, I think the teams are stand out teams, and they're coming into the tournament. I mean, their uh, success rate or their track record, the more I think, thirty-two games unbeaten, something like that. Mm, so right. I think they really are the teams to beat. To be honest with you, I, for me, I think I regard them as a favorite. Shazil, your view? Interesting. Um, I think uh, of the teams, my my two favorites would have been Brazil and France on paper. Um, as we always say, the World Cup is number one on paper. But I think France um, have left uh, or um, lost Benzema overnight for the whole World Cup. Mm. I think that will have a massive impact on them because he's a Ballon d'Or winner this year and was a talisman yeah. of that side. Mm. Now they're going to rely on Mbappe. He's been very petulant, to say the least. So it'll be interesting mm. to see how that pans out. But my favourites, I think, are Brazil, uh, simply because of uh, the defence. They've been very miserly. Uh, they've got a, a, an excellent goalkeeper and back four, and then they've got a front three, which is you know probably one of the world's best. Uh, but outside of that, I would say someone like perhaps Belgium uh, perhaps has a chance. Someone from the outside. It's ironic that we're talking of Brazil's defence when we've always seen Brazil <laughs> as an attacking team. Has the, has the World Cup and has international football changed? I think the fact that you get to see players week in, week out, majority of uh, South Americans mm. ply their trade here in uh, Europe mm. uh, means that, you know, that X factor that you perhaps would have seen in previous World Cups mm. of players like Adair and, you know, people you wouldn't have seen week in, week out. And then it's something difficult to cope with. I think now you know what you're expecting, mm. but uh, but it's still, for me, to take away from the, the festival of football. Mm. Very much looking forward to it. Shai, has the football become too Europeanized? I would say so. Definitely. For the sec, like mentioned, mentioned the fact that when we see players in and out every week, uh, not just the Europeans, but also all the worldwide players for that matter, South Americans as well. That surprise element that we once had in the yellow shirts of Brazil coming out was something totally different, mm. and that for me has mm. gone out. And I think the defense and the way football is now played, Guardiola, for me, Guardiola has changed football altogether. I mean, I'm sure other people have other views as well, but the fact that they all start from the back and so forth, and it's a totally different game to what we saw in the past. It was 100% all the rest of it, and that's not the case. And Brazil, if they're relying on the defense, just says a lot. And then they have a forward line, as has been mentioned. 
So they're a team to watch, obviously, as well. I presume the 1970 World Cup where we saw Brazil start from the back and the game mm. flowed to the front rather than, <laughs> in, you know, in, in stages, it flowed to the front. It was, it was quite amazing to watch. We, we, we're never going to see that again. Maybe the nearest yeah. we got was 1982 with the Brazil team and the other Brazil team mm. when they won it with Ronaldo and mm. uh, Ronaldinho in the team. Yeah, I think O2 yeah, was one of the World Cups that I remember. Um, but again, you've got to remember that Brazil side was built on two defensive midfielders with the front mm-hmm. three of Rivaldo, Ronaldo and Ronaldinho. So, uh, as you said, football has changed. It's become an athletic sport. You know, you gentlemen would know more so about hockey. Hockey was a skill game. Now it's a fitness game. Yes, correct. Well well put. Uh, OK, what about players to... Oh, none of you have mentioned England as a potential winner. <laughs> <laughs> what... what, what, what England, they got to the final of the European, they got to the semi-final of the last World Cup. Why aren't they being considered as one of the teams? Shahid? I think the fact that... Go on, I'm feeling, yeah. Yeah, Go on. I would just say that with regard to England, I think that dip form in the dip in their form has actually, I think, is I think the reason that I would say that they're not amongst the front runners this time. Uh, mm. Having said that, I think my feeling is that they at least they make the quarterfinals, and so it, anybody's game after that. But that additional uh, rung that they need to you know, go ahead on is, I think, something that's going to be missing. And I think that that's a lot to do with the Premiership for the fact that players are looking jaded. I mean, more so than they would at the end of the season somehow. And the number of games that they have, most of the players are playing. I'm not saying that the other players are not uh, in the in the World Cup having doing the same thing. Uh, but I think that will impact. I, I would say England because. England don't have that many talisman in their team in the sense that um, they rely a lot on Harry Kane and so forth, and defence is not as strong as it used to be. Mm. Uh, will uh, Kane get the golden boot, uh, uh, Shazal? Um, Second, first, first, pe- first one to get two. <laughs> <laughs> if they get as many penalties as they did in previous ones, <laughs> I don't think they'll do. Um, no, I, I don't think so. I don't, I, unfortunately, I mean, I just don't think England have... One, they have a lot of pressure here from home and media. Mm. I think that that absolutely collapses them every every time in every tournament. Okay. Um, you know, they face an aging side in Italy at the Euros, and they weren't able to overcome them. Yeah. Uh, going into the World Cup tournament, I just don't think they have the mentality to win. And as Shaitad said, you know, perhaps they don't have those talismans. They don't have a world-class standout player. As mm. much as they want to make Harry Kane, he's not that le- that level of player. Mm-hmm. Valid, hmm. players to watch for the World Cup. Who have you got in mind? Who are you going to be not going to miss a game for? Oh dear, um, Messi certainly. Sure. Really? Uh, even 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 at this stage, yes. Yeah. Okay. And then the the new players that are coming forward, Mbappe is yeah. one. Well, uh, he was the star last World Cup. Yes. Uh, sh- uh, shame Haaland is not playing. Uh, but <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. But then. Uh, um, I was looking forward to Benzema, but uh, Benzema's uh, out. Oh, so yeah, he's been yes. ruled out, as Shaz has just um, mentioned as well. And uh, possibly Lewandowski. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, but not, not Ronaldo. No? no. I think he's a, he's a spent force, personally, more than <laughs> Messi is. I Do you guys agree with that, with Cristiano Ronaldo being a spent force and any other players in your mind? Shazel first. Um, I think I actually think this interview and everything that Cristiano Ronaldo has done, it will give him um, a real... A drive to push Portugal all the way. I think they'll be right up there. I think they'll have the adverse effect. And I think the way he's been treated at Manchester United will even spur him on as well because now he's looking for a move. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how he does. I think he'll do well. I think he'll do better than Messi will. Um, not just because of a one-on-one scenario, but I think Portugal have very good players around him 
like Bernardo Silva, uh, like his colleague at Manchester United, uh, Bruno Fernandes. I think they've got some good players. Mm. And then I think Neymar's in very good form uh, and has been. In the last few years, he hasn't. He's coming into this tournament uh, with with himself, Messi and Mbappe at PSG have been playing very well. It'll be interesting to see how he plays. Yeah. I think, Shahid, the Neymar's play-acting, which was accused last World Cup, has <laughs> I think that's disappeared in him now. And he's now actually playing more bat- bat- better football. Would you say that's true? Or? Having said that, I was just thinking about uh, Shahid's comment about Harry Kane's penalties. And I think they're saying coming to the World Cup, Neymar is supposed to be the best diver. So <laughs> I don't know where how that, that fits in. But... To be honest with you, two players I would like. Mbappe is one player that I haven't watched a lot of, but I really he, I, he excites me a lot, mm. and I think I'm looking forward to. It. And the other one is De Bruyne. To be honest with you, that's one player mm. that I really rate very highly. But yes. having said that, I mean it depends as to players around him. And Belgium are relying on people like Van Tongen and so forth, and yeah. uh, Divide still, and that I think might be a, something that he has to do a lot more than it does at Manchester City. Sure. So those players, I mean the other ones, I think when uh, was mentioned about the usual ones, Messi here, Ronaldo. As far as I'm concerned, I think he's a spent force. But having said that, he has still a lot to provide to a team like Portugal mm. and if the players around him that Shazid is mentioning come up to the mark they, they can get the best out of him still mm. Wales in for the first time since 58 they were knocked out by the 17 year old Pele <laughs> uh, will there be a uh, challenge to England in the group? The home countries always give a challenge to each other to be honest with you mm. it's never an easy game and I think Wales might well do that yeah. Uh uh, Wales have nothing to lose. Let's put it that way. So, uh, but I think on paper they should England should overcome yeah. that. Shazal uh, Qatar versus Ecuador today. Uh, Qatar seems to have done a lot of uh, good work, and they're coming into this uh, uh, quite positively. Um, I think they, they can they can come in and, and do the PR and have some good friendlies and what have you. But <laughs> I think an established team like Ecuador should, I, I would suggest, uh, come out victorious. I don't think they wipe the floor with them. No. I think they'll be comfortable victors today, but it's a bit of an X-factor game. Yeah. You never know what happens in the first game of a World Cup. Well, the last time they played it was 4-3, not too long ago. Very close. Oh, very close game, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, what about uh, England's first game, Shahid? Walid? Uh, yeah, Iran, I mean, there's so much talk about it off the pitch more than on the pitch, mm. but England should be able to beat Iran on paper anyway, let's put it that way. And mm. uh, But like I said, the first game is an important game and that puts the tempo for the rest of the tournament and England will want to win that. Mm. But Iran won't be easy pushovers. Let's put it that way. No, no, no. I agree. I think the, the Iran will not be pushovers, but England should should overcome okay. that. Okay. One word answers, everyone. Shahid, who's going to win the World Cup? I stick to Argentina. Okay. Shazil. Brazil. The lead. Ditto, Brazil. Brazil, right. Mm. Okay, so two to one. Mm. Let's see what happens in this World Cup, and let's hope we have a good, enjoyable World Cup. Happens on the fence. <laughs> uh, I, I'm always a Brazilian fan, <laughs> or, or the Argentinians. I don't mind either. Yeah. Right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you for your input. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with me. Uh, thank you to our guests, Melissa Amadi and uh, Dr. Iqbal, and thank you, Willith, and to our mm-hmm. listeners in particular for joining us uh, on our weekend world show with Asalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.